Hey, good morning, everyone. My name's Ben. Welcome to Four Corners Church. Hey, I have in my hand a little hand-carved statue uh, from Africa. A friend of mine gave this to me, and I want to tell you the story about it because while it may not mean much to you, this is a very, very special uh, gift to me. In fact, it sits behind my desk so that every time I go uh, in my office over here and I go to get into my seat, I actually have to look at this thing when I, when I sit down. So this was given to me by my friend named Chris, who years ago, um, we lived about uh, half a block away from each other, about eight houses down the road from me. And um, we used to play the greatest video game of all time together, Atari 2600. Anybody in the room? Yeah. Uh, I don't know the popular video game today, but I can tell you it's not as good as the ones I used to play. Um, and so we would play this game and uh, we went from sixth grade together, uh, middle school, high school. We went to different colleges. And um, Chris would come to my house all the time. I'd go to his house. His dad worked with my dad. We even went to church together uh, for a while. And um, when we went our separate ways in college, I never knew that I was going to end up in this particular kind of ministry. And I never even thought for a minute that Chris was going to end up in ministry, even though he was a really good guy and a, and a good brother in Christ uh, all the way through high school. But he did. He ended up in ministry. And um, he ended up going to Africa, to a country that is a steep Wow, that would be really, really awkward, wouldn't it, on Christmas Eve Eve, if that happened. I could try to act like this is part of the show, but hey, can we just press, thank you, Jesus, let there be light. Um, anyway, Chris ended up in a, in a Muslim country that, uh, where there's a lot of extreme fundamentalism, and um, he decided, he and his wife, Jackie, that they would serve women who were at an extreme disadvantage. And so they would go to women's prisons where women were in prison uh, for things like uh, not wearing the right clothing, or perhaps they tried to drive a vehicle, or maybe they could read. Literally, that happened. And so they were in prison. And so they would go into these prisons and they would teach women uh, certain basic skills so they could be self-sufficient. And then they would serve the kids in the area. They would teach them, again, basic skills. And uh, they would generally just love on them things like simple hygiene and how to cook and maybe some basic skills around reading and that sort of thing. And they ingrained themselves in this community about the same time we were starting this church. And so when we started the church, we wanted to be generous from day one. And so the first year we helped a, a church in um, inner city Tampa get started. Uh, that's how this church helped. The second year, we put a birthing clinic in Ghana in Africa. We built one for a missionary couple there. And then the third year or so, we helped Chris and his family in their, uh, in their missionary work in Africa. And so they, had, they were at home for a little while on, on furlough, and he brought me this gift right here. And um, I didn't think much about it. It's a hand-carved a guy kind of kneeling. It's almost like an African thinker, if you know that Rodin uh, statue. It's kind of a version of that. And he said that he's given this to me just in part of like res responding to our gift to him. But thank you, thank you. But also he gave this to me so that in general terms, I could think and keep my mind on Africa and pray uh, for Africa regularly. So, so years passed and we kept in contact, uh, sometimes email, sometimes when they were in the States. And always he was very grateful for the investment of this church. And then one day I get a call from a mutual friend of mine. He says, uh, turn on the news, CNN. And I turned on the news from CNN and there was my friend that I grew up with laying on a street 
in the little Muslim country where he was, and uh, he had been shot dead. What had happened was, he was coming out of the little center they built where they educate kids and women and teach them basic life stuff. And uh, actually, it was Al-Qaeda. Pulled him out of his car, shot him dead in the street. And there was this guy I grew up with, with his body. And you, you could just tell it was him laying there. And he literally was murdered. And when they were murdering him, they said, this is for being a Christian and talking about Jesus. This was what the locals heard as they killed him. And so I had never known a martyr. Uh, for the faith, but, but this was uh, a guy that I grew up with and knew. And immediately, this gift that he gave me took on special importance. Like, like it was a nice gift already, but now every time I walk in, I think about a guy that I grew up with that I used to play video games with, and I think about the gift that he gave me, but I think also about what was going on in his heart, how that he had received Christ as his Savior, was so impacted by that, that it produced in him a love to work in a very, very hard place. He had he and his wife and his four kids there. But what's interesting about this is the, just a few weeks ago, I got an email from his wife, who has over the 10 years or so remarried, and um, they're going back to their little uh, country in Africa, which is no more friendly to the gospel than it was, no more easy to be a Christian than it was. And they're taking their four underage 18 children back with them, she, her new husband, because she says to me that God gave her a love for these people that just hasn't stopped, even though uh, that culture is responsible, really, that darkness for the death and the murder, actually, of, of her husband. And so she's like, I just wanted to, to tell you that and have you begin praying. Um, and that has been in my heart and mind for the last few weeks, and I wanted to, to show you this little picture or this little gift because I wanted you to think for just a moment about the greatest gift this world has ever seen, uh, the gift of Jesus and how powerful it is and how sometimes it's difficult to even know really what it means. But over time, when you walk with the Lord over years, over decades, you begin to, you begin to get a more profound sense of what it really means. We're going to look at the last installment of our series on Ephesians. We've been in it for over eight weeks now, and we're going to take our last installment today, so Ephesians chapter 6, and I want to take you to a, a pastor's heart, the Apostle Paul, who loved this church, and he wanted them to understand just how powerful and gracious the gift of Jesus really is. It's Advent season where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, and I thought it'd be cool in preparation for this particular message for us to look at the Christmas story from the book of Revelation. In your Bible, Revelation chapter 12, it's where the Christmas story in the book of Revelation is found. You don't have to turn there. I don't have it for you on the screen notes. As soon as I read this, we're going to jump into um, a, a little bit of our conversation about gifts we give and then Paul's words. But I want you to hear how John the Revelator described the Christmas story from a spiritual perspective. Revelation chapter 12, the greatest and most encouraging children's Christmas story ever written. See if you agree. Revelations 12. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a garland, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great and fiery red dragon. How many Christmas stories have a fiery red dragon? A fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on its head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with an 
with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was placed prepared, to a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. It doesn't sound like the typical Christmas story because this is the Christmas story from the perspective of heaven, which leads us really to what we need to talk about today. That beyond the seen world that you and I are aware of, there is an unseen world that is very real and very present and always in front of us and incredibly hidden. When we read the story of Revelation chapter 12, we get the Christmas story from heaven's perspective. There's a woman in pain of childbirth. There is a dragon ready to devour the child. If you know the Christmas story, you know that on earth, while this is going on in a heavenly scene, on earth, Mary's about to give birth, and King Herod has heard about the fact that there may be a new king of the Jews. So he sets about to kill all the boys under a certain age to make sure that the heir apparent doesn't rise to the throne. From heaven's perspective, this is a spiritual struggle. From earth's perspective, it's a king, it's a regent who's gone mad. From heaven's perspective, it's just a woman giving birth where there's no room, or from earth's perspective, where there's no room in the end. But in heaven's perspective, this is a cosmic struggle between God and the evil one who's bent on destruction to kill, steal, and destroy. Those are his marching orders. And in the middle of that struggle, God's going to send an incredible gift, one that from time to time it's appropriate to pull out and look at to just see how beautiful it really is. Don't ever underestimate the power of a gift. Before we actually look at Ephesians 6, I want to share with you the gift that our church is doing this year like we did years ago when we made an investment in a missionary couple. There are several ways that we are giving a gift this year. Four of them I've been talking with you about by the same pictures on the screen. Take a look at the first one. This is 4C India, the church on the right, the girls' orphanage uh, on the left in the, in the background. For 10 years, we've been invested there. We've built that building, uh, augmented the building in the back, basically built that as well. 40 girls, 12 or so guys, 15, depending on um, what part of the year you count, and then uh, some dozen or so pastors that we support there. We give them gifts so that they can be a light in a dark world. If you look at this next picture, it's a picture of our kids' space where every year we make a major upgrade to the ministry environments here so that we can bring light to North Cincinnati if you, haven't seen, <clears throat> if you haven't seen our kids' ministry space in the last few months, please take a look at 4C Kids Elementary because in the last two weeks, there's been some major upgrades there. You make that happen through things like the Christmas gift. <clears throat> this third picture is a picture of Pastor Jose and Yami, who along with Pastor Kevin and his wife, Tani, who are sitting right over here, they make our partnership in Cuba happen. Behind Pastor Jose and Yami, who are in the front ground of this picture, are a bunch of pastors, many of whom are sponsored by people in this room. You supplement their salary so they can be a light in a dark place. And this final picture is a picture of what our church is going to do to help the fatherless, the widow, those who are on an extremely tight budget who are within our own community, make sure that their basic needs like transportation are met. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to offer free car service, basic car service, to people in our church community and people you know outside of our church community over the course of the year so that we can show them God's love in a very practical way and help them tangibly experience a loving and gracious community. All these things are gifts that we're giving that are very tangible, but behind them all is a very spiritual and real dynamic. It's a spiritual reality that Jesus is the greatest gift ever given to the world. And when Christians share gifts with one another, it's a powerful reminder, if we let it be, that we are recipients of the greatest gift that the world has ever known. So at Christmas, our church every year gets together and does this thing called My Christmas Gift. We set two goals, a goal for total money brought in so we can do these kinds of things and several other things. And a participation goal. So this year it's $80,000 and 100% participation. And I'm going to be honest with you, you guys are killing it. If we continue, all the things that we want to do, we're going to be able to do in pre-fund. If for whatever reason we don't hit our goal, we just won't do what we're trying to do. It's that simple. The money doesn't exist, all right? And so the way you decide whether or not you want to do these things is you give to the Christmas gift. I've got some great news for you right now. We're at like $44,000 taken in. We're over the halfway mark. Now, I grew up in a church where we gave God regular thanks, and that's a time right there. Would you join me in just thanking God for the generosity of this place? Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. That's your generosity on display. Our hope is that everybody would participate. If you don't have much money, would you give at least a dollar? So then when we start celebrating what God has done through this Christmas gift over the course of 2020, you're going to have a part in it. I want you to have a part because it isn't for us about money. It's about a spiritual investment. I, I never knew when our church gave Chris $2,000 that I would get a little statue. My first thought was, I, this statue didn't cost $2,000, right? That's my first thought. Because see, that's where I go sometimes, right? I'm kidding in part, but the truth is, is that the gift that we give never, never, never comes back to us the way that we think when we're giving kingdom gifts. When you give a kind word, when you open up your heart to somebody, when you make some time, when you give a dollar gift, you never really get it back in the way that you're thinking it's going to come back. This is the power of what God does in multiplying a gift. Because behind the very tangible gift like dollar or time or gentleness or kindness or a little patience over here, behind the gift that is mechanically worked out in relationships there's a spiritual dynamic that in many ways is more real and powerful. And the spiritual forces at work make a profound difference for good and sometimes for evil. So when the Apostle Paul wanted to end this love letter to a church that he cared so much for, he decided that the way he would end was not by giving a bunch of practical advice for how to be nicer to each other, and he didn't give a bunch of practical advice for how to live and work in a world dominated by the Roman Empire. Instead, he wanted to give a snapshot of the spiritual dynamic that was at work in his church, in the world in which they lived, and it's still at work in us today. This spiritual dynamic is still very much at play. And if you're not careful, you'll miss it. I want to take you back to a time of war, not about dragons in heavenly places, but on June 6, 1944, at 6.30 a.m., there were 5,000 American ships carrying 160,000 Allied troops. 
They were approaching the southern beaches of France for what would be the largest invasion ever in the history of humanity. We know that day is D-Day. Some of the men who survived the invasion were interviewed, and they remembered that on the morning of the invasion, before they ever launched out of their ships for the beaches, there was a steady stream of messages coming over the intercom systems of the ships. The messages went like this. Fight to get your troops ashore. Fight to save your ships. And if you have any strength left, fight to save yourself. Another message. We may die on the sands of France, but we will never turn back. Blaring over the intercoms was another message. This is it. Pick it up. Put it on. You've got a one-way ticket, and this is the end of the line. Over 2,500 Americans died on that day, many of them in the span of about 15 minutes after soldier after soldier climbed over the bodies of their dead compatriots to reach the shores of southern France. Now, when you think about warfare like that, it brings to me a certain gratitude for being a part of one of the greatest countries this world has ever known. I really believe that. But it also reminds me that not a single person that day who stormed the beaches of Normandy had any misconception about what was actually happening. When they heard they were going to southern France, none of them got a beach towel, none of them grabbed sunscreen, and none of them grabbed a rubber ducky to take to the beach. They all had unequivocal clarity that what was happening was a war, that the stakes were high. So the messages that were blaring were preparing them for what would be an onslaught of activity meant to push the enemy back. They were clear in their purpose. They knew they had an enemy, and they were getting their hearts, their minds, and their bodies ready to engage. This is what the Apostle Paul is trying to do with the last few verses of Ephesians chapter 6. He's trying to remind us that we have an enemy, that there is a real spiritual battle. And at Christmas time, that battle was put on dramatic display. The stakes are high here. What was at stake was, would the greatest gift this world has ever experienced, the person of Jesus, would it make a profound difference in eternity? Would it make a profound difference in the family of God? Would men and women become children of God in such a way that their lives would be changed? And so there were churches started, sermons were preached, relationships were built, offerings were taken, taken, service was done. All of that was mechanical, but behind it all was a spiritual thrust to make the gift of Jesus clear and present in this world. Sometimes we forget this spiritual stuff. The problem is, is when you start talking about it, everybody wants to know, is this the day that our church gets weird? Because it sounds like you're talking about all kinds of crazy stuff. If you don't think it sounds crazy yet, look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. On the screen, here's what your Bible says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now this is crazy language to a lot of people. This is language above the surly bonds of earth and it's taking place in heaven. And it, it gives us a snapshot. It pulls the curtain back on the spiritual realities of what's happening around here. 
The truth is, is you have an enemy and his entire goal is to kill, steal, and destroy. So when we start talking about this, people want to know, is this the point at which our church gets very, very weird? And I wanted to let you know the answer to that is yes. So the ushers are preparing right now to bring snakes forward, poisonous snakes. I'm kidding. We're not pulling out the snakes till the end of the service. So, but I want to start with the very obvious. The apostle Paul believed in an unseen world. And Jesus did too. In fact, Jesus spent a huge portion of his time on earth declaring freedom for the captive, implying that somebody has been bound by something. And when you look at Jesus' ministry, he's regularly engaging demonic activity in hopes of setting people free from the devil's hooks, from the snares, from the fiery darts that come at us. And Jesus wants to set captives free so that they can experience all that God has for them. So he ends the book of Ephesians trying to remind us that when we struggle in this world relationally, when you have a challenge in your small group, when your marriage has an issue, when you have a struggle with your kids, when there's a problem at work, when your church is going through a thing, all that's practical and normal But behind it all, somebody has designs to bring pain and death to everybody involved. And to our peril, we forget this is going on, disciples. When we forget this is going on, it would be like taking a beach towel and sunscreen to D-Day. When what's pointed at you is very real weapons of destruction. And when you talk like this, I think it's important to remind you what my favorite author has to say about this stuff, C.S. Lewis. He says, when it comes to the demonic, people usually fall into one of two errors. Either they take him altogether too seriously, or they do not take him seriously enough. So you might know some Christians who fall into the first camp. There's a demon behind every bush. My car battery is dead. It's a demon. It's a traffic jam. The devil's out to get me. Sweet tea at McDonald's went to a buck 29 instead of a dollar, and the Satan's trying to destroy my budget so I can't tithe. Right? Not today, Satan. That's the response to everything. That's ridiculous. On the other hand, a far more egregious error happens a lot, which is we never see Satan behind things. So everything we struggle with, it's that person, it's that thing, it's that issue over there. When in fact, there's a spiritual dynamic behind every argument you've ever had with your spouse. And every challenge you've ever had with your kid. And the enemy is working every angle to bring to you pain and destruction so that the gift of Jesus and what it means to be God's child cannot be experienced by you here and now. He wants to rob you of joy. He wants to rob you of purpose. He wants to keep you drained and sedated by problems so that you don't engage the life that God has for you. So the truth of the matter is, is Satan doesn't care one bit whether you acknowledge he's behind the problems or not. He has no desire to be known by you. So the first blink in your message notes is, is you have an enemy that does not care for your identification. He doesn't care if you acknowledge him. He doesn't care if you see him. He doesn't care if you recognize him at all. He does not care at all for your recognition. He's after your destruction. In fact, he would rather you not even think about the fact that he's there. That's why in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, that our enemy can mask himself as an angel of light. 
In our modern world, if he came to us making people's eyes roll back in their heads, heads spinning around, levitating six feet off the ground, most of us would laugh at that as a Hollywood gimmick. So he doesn't do that. He comes sometimes presenting what seems to be good to us that is actually a distraction from God's best for us. And he gets us tripped up sometimes even on good opportunities that we think is awesome for us, but it's not what God wants for us. So he comes to us sometimes even with gifts it appears to be of light. That's how sneaky he is. That's how dangerous he is. That's why the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, to every disciple, be alert, be sober-minded, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He prowls around. He's a hunter. Now, how many of you in this room have gone hunting? You like to hunt. Anybody? Three people. This is the suburbs. A lot of you have guns and like to shoot things. How many of you guys have guns and like to shoot things? Come on, raise your hand. There you go. Be proud, man. You know what it's like if you're hunting something. You don't want to be known, do you? So he doesn't want to be known. He'd prefer to stay in the shadows because if you know he's there, you're going to be on the lookout. Instead, he's crouched down, hiding behind the tree, waiting at every doorpost so when you walk through, he can pounce on you. There are two primary images in this verse from Peter, that he's a hunter, and the second image is, is that he's a lion, which means he's a part of the cat family, which means all cats are demons. Do you see how powerful the Bible is? Now listen, just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not there. Ignace Samwise was a doctor in 1846, and he came up with a theory that we now call germ theory. Here's what he supposed that was revolutionary. That what was making people sick, in part, were small particles we could not see. He called them microbes because he didn't have a magnifying glass or a microscope big enough to see them. So he made up a name, microbe, small pieces of flesh that we transmit on our dirty hands from a dead body to a mother giving birth to her baby. So he went around this country pleading for people, for doctors to just wash their hands. But nobody believed there was any rationality to this because if you can't see it, it's not there. So he was laughed out of conference after conference. In fact, he died penniless and in an asylum. 25 years later, Louis Pasteur resurrected his idea and people began to hold on to the fact that there are things that you cannot see with your naked eyes. You do not sense naturally, easily. And as a result, if you're ignorant of them, they will do all kinds of destruction on you. This is the exact same thing that's happening spiritually at Christmas and every day of your life. So many Christians are so naive to what's happening to them because they're disbelieving of what they cannot see. So every once in a while, you get the curtain pulled back and you're watching the news and you see some horrific story and you say to yourself, now that's evil. I was talking recently with a policeman and he said, whenever we think through what happens in these mass shootings, I sound ridiculous when I say to my friends, there's something demonic here. But I really believe it, Pastor, he said. And I said, I I, I do too, but I get it. People who don't have the spiritual mind sometimes can't see what's going on. But the truth is sometimes disciples are naive that you have an enemy. Let me be perfectly clear. You do. He's been at work for a long time. I don't want to make this 
all about his power and his might. But when the Apostle Paul wanted to leave a parting thought to the Ephesians church, he wanted them to know there is a real enemy and the stakes are high. Pay attention. He was speaking to the church leaders. He was speaking to parents. He was speaking to husbands and wives. He wanted people to know that there's destruction if you're not careful. And he also wanted them to know that the gift of Jesus was so powerful that you didn't have to walk in fear. Even though behind many challenges in your life, there's an intentional plan to destroy you. So how do you live with the reality that spiritual struggle is real and at the same time not walk in perpetual fear? The Apostle Paul explains that in these words as he closes out Ephesians chapter 6. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. There are big uber forces at work that we cannot see, that left to our own strength, we are incapable of challenging in any effective way. But the good news is that you are not left to your own devices. You do not have to engage these spiritual forces on your own. In fact, you're not called to, you're not supposed to. It would be foolish to try. Instead, the gift of Jesus in this world means that all the darkness that is present in your life, that which you see and do not see, the stuff that you, is obvious to you and the stuff going on behind the scenes, the gift of Jesus, the light of the world, means that all of that darkness ultimately is going to be banished because the light of Christ will shine and you don't have to wait for some future reality. In very real ways, here and now, the light of Christ can shine in your life, illuminating the darkness, making you walk in power and victory. It's very real and at the same time, we have to press into it. It's accomplished for you by Christ, but as a disciple, God's going to use the struggle as you try to walk in it to develop and grow you. And what's at stake is your spiritual vitality and your spiritual influence. What's at stake is your joy and the way your life bleeds onto other people. So Paul tells us in these words, in light of these dark forces in verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God. And for the next few verses, he's going to describe several pieces of armament drawing directly from the visual of a fully dressed Roman soldier to explain to you some, I believe, one practical point teased out seven different ways. Each of these armaments are really making the exact same point. It's going to make it in seven different ways with a couple of unique practical application points. And I'm going to give you the secret behind the armor of God. The armor of God ultimately is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's ultimately about the power of Jesus, God's greatest gift to the world, given to you as his son or daughter. It's not about your power. It's not meant to give you tricks and schemes so that like some guy on the movie The Matrix, when the devil shoots at you, you can slowly turn at just the right angle as the arrows pass by you. That's not what's going on at all. What's going on is your ability to stand, not in your own might, with your own schemes, but with Jesus Christ himself living in you, protecting you, going before you. You're able to stand in very dark places 
under incredible attack and still thrive. I look at this statue. You're able to literally go back where your husband and father was murdered for the gospel and say, I love those people. They need Jesus. And the sacrifice that gave me the gift of Jesus makes any sacrifice I would give pale in comparison. It makes me as a pastor who has a small, such a small part in just giving a few dollars and pennies to help a guy like this do the work he's called to do. It makes me realize that whatever sacrifice I did personally and our church did corporately to support a guy like this pales in comparison to the gift of Jesus available to the world and the gift of Jesus I have received personally. So how do you put on the armor of God? How do you take on Jesus? I think some of the imagery here gives us some insight into what's going on. And I won't stretch this metaphor too far. I don't think it's meant to be. I think it's meant to essentially say the same thing over and over again. So he writes again in verse 13, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. So after everything's happened, you're still standing. Then he says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Again, every person originally reading this letter would have had in mind a Roman soldier. And they knew about the, the holy garments, if you will, those strong leather garments that were worn somewhere about this section right here that were fastened with a belt. Because evidently you don't want to run towards the enemy and trip over your underwear. That would be embarrassing and possibly deadly. So you tighten the belt. What kind of belt? Your first blank. This is the belt of truth. You fasten it around. You stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And when I think about this as a believer, two ideas come to mind. The first one comes from the words of Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. For Christianity, truth is not just a set of propositions we believe. Truth is ultimately a person. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. These are the words of Jesus. So when we put on the belt of truth, we're effectively saying, Jesus, I walk in you today. Now remember, when we first started this series eight weeks ago, I said to you the phrase, in Christ, with Christ, connected to Christ. These are ideas that were prominent throughout the letter to the Ephesian church. When you put on the garment that is the belt of truth, you are effect saying, I put on Jesus. I take it with me everywhere I go. You may not even be able to see it because it might be hidden by other pieces of the armament, but Jesus is fundamentally connected to me and I am fundamentally covered by him. So the words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life are important, but the other words of Jesus, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth for Christians is both a person as well as the truth that person speaks. So that what Jesus says is more true than any other things that are said. Who Jesus declares you to be is the truest description of your identity. Every lie spoken of you, every lie whispered in your ear to distract you, 
Every untruth the culture offers to entice you fails because the truth, the person of Jesus, and the truth, the words of Jesus, becomes a filter by which you can engage this world's lies so you and I are not tripped up by the deceiving schemes of our enemy. This is the power of the belt of truth. It's one of the reasons pastors want you to get into the scriptures, to read your Bible. Because when you read your Bible, you're revealing to yourself the words of God. You learn about him. You learn what's important to him. It becomes for you an arsenal of a weapon and part of your armament. The breastplate of truth buckled around your waist. And then he says, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. So every person thought about those sculpted coverings of the vital organs that the Roman soldiers wore. I don't know all that it means, but I like to think about the fact that every Roman soldier who put on this beautiful sculpted six or eight pack abs defined piece of metal over their vital organs, not all of them had six or eight packs, just so we're clear. Some of them had flab. Some of them had love handles. Some of them were almost as felt as I am right up here on this stage right now. But they would put on this breastplate and it would make them look fabulous. I think we should bring it back. I'm going to try. I got a Kickstarter campaign. You can help me. Total joke. But they'd put this on and just think about the image. It didn't matter what was behind. It looked powerful. It looked ready because whatever else was going on behind was covered by this beautiful image of sculptedness. Now, that's not too far a stretch for what was really happening spiritually. When you and I put on the breastplate of righteousness, what we're really saying is, is, I'm not always right. I'm not always holy. I do bad things. But all of my brokenness, all of my sin, all of my ugliness is covered by everything that's right with Jesus. Righteousness, right being and right doing. I don't have it. Jesus does. And on the cross, he chose all of my not rightness and he gave me all of his righteousness. That's the great exchange of the cross. So when I stand and I put on the breastplate of righteousness, I'm remembering the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. The whole good news is this, is I can't be good enough, but he was and he did the work for me. When people gather in this room tomorrow night, for Eve Eve, we're going to give a simple gospel message. And I want to be crystal clear with language here. The gospel is not in Christian terms. The gospel is not just nice preaching where people walk in and we give them a few skills about life. Hey, welcome to our Christmas Eve service. Here's a way to get better with your, here, here's three tips on how to get along better with your family this year. That's not the gospel. It might be good news if you're not getting along with your family, but it's not the gospel. Hey, welcome to our Christmas Eve service. Here's three ways we can serve people around us. That's not the gospel. It's not. I'm going to be crystal clear what the Bible says the good news of Jesus is. The good news of Jesus, first of all, is about Jesus. So Christian preaching that doesn't mention Jesus, that doesn't have Jesus as the central theme, is not Christian preaching. It's not the gospel. Now, in Christian preaching, there's a lot of good advice in the Bible. 
about how to get along better in marriage, how to get along better with your family, how to serve people, blah, blah, blah. All that's good, but it's underneath the banner of being, this is what people who have been radically changed by Jesus do because they've been radically changed by Jesus. So when we say we're going to give a simple gospel message tomorrow, I'm going to be crystal clear with you. We're preaching Jesus. Now, some people will walk away with a few tags of what they need in the moment. Sometimes we'll tease out what that looks like. But tomorrow night, it's all about Jesus and a particular, particular part about Jesus. It's not that Jesus was a nice guy. Let's all act like Jesus because in our own power, we can't act like Jesus. So trying to get people who don't believe in Jesus, who haven't been brought to life by Jesus, to act like Jesus is incredibly ridiculous and frustrating. What we're actually going to tell people about Jesus is, Jesus was perfect, you're not. And since you can't fix your brokenness, let the work Jesus did fix you. That's the gospel. That you and I were sinners. Jesus gave his one and only life that you and I could be brought from death to life and become his child. That is the gospel. It gets teased out in a lot of other ways. Jesus is the one and only son of the father. No one can come to the father by any other name. So when Paul's trying to teach them the, the, the armaments of a child of God, he's basically saying, here's the gospel, friends. The gospel looks like you walking with the belt of truth, who you are in him what you can do in him, how powerful you are in him, how without him you're dead in your transgressions and sins, but with him you're everything. And then it looks like putting on a breastplate of righteousness that covers all your love handles, all your flab, all your roly-polies, whatever you want to call them. It covers it all because in Christ, you're not all that you appear to be. You're something so much more than you appear on the outside because his righteousness was given to you and he's perfect. And he took all of your imperfections on him and declared you to be holy and right and powerful in his sight. This is the gospel. This is what we have as an inheritance. This is the gift that keeps giving if you're trying to somehow live the Christian life without Christ, I promise you, you are a miserable Christian. You can't do it. If somehow you're trying to just clean up the edges, but don't let Jesus come all the way through, you're not covering it all, all the vital organs, with the righteousness of Christ. You believe something other than the gospel, perhaps. So we put on the breastplate of righteousness. We put on the shoes of readiness for the gospel. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It's the shoes, those leather strappy shoes that they wore. If you ever were in a Christmas play as a kid perhaps or you saw one, they wear like sandal-like things or perhaps go barefoot and the soldiers would wear some leather clad shoes, sometimes covering the foot, sometimes just on the bottom. And what it did is it gave them the ability to walk forward confidently, not having to look down at everything. A very simple, practical tool. It's actually part of the offensive movement of their weaponry. It helps them to advance. And when the gospel is shared, when you're ready to share the gospel, two primary advancements can happen. Something happens in you every time you talk about what Jesus has done for you. Every time. It's It's, it's interesting. When you think about the gift of Jesus that happened to you and you reflect on 
who you are in him, it reminds you of something profound and powerful. So when you share the gospel, it gives you a chance to reflect on how awesome God is. And when you share the gospel, it gives you a chance to remind other people, perhaps to show them for the first time how powerful God can be in their lives. So the issue here is it's being ready to move forward with the gospel. Think about how silly this was. When Jesus looked at 12, largely uneducated, un, uh, unorganized, with no real social status to speak of, and he looked at 12 ordinary people who had never traveled more than 15, 20 miles from home, and he said to them, I want you to go to every part of the world and share the message I've shared with you. That's ridiculous. It's silly. They didn't know how to travel. They didn't have money. They didn't have means. But what they did is they knew that they had something with Jesus. So everywhere they went, everywhere they went, they testified. Think about what a testimony is. A testimony is not, tell me what you think the facts mean. A testimony is not, uh, get rid of every shred of doubt in everybody's mind about the thing you want us to know. That's not a testimony. A testimony is simply this. Here's what happened to me. I may not even be able to understand it all. All I know is what happened to me. Go into all the world and testify of me. Testify what has happened to you. So when you share the gospel, you're not asked to counteract every single thing and every single thought people have. You're meant to say something like this. Jesus has radically changed my life. I don't even understand how all the time. All I can tell you is that with Jesus, life looks like this. Without Jesus, life looks like this. I'm choosing life with Jesus. That's a testimony. So when you share the gospel, you're not called upon to get rid of everybody's ignorance. In fact, there's only two things you need. You have to be confident that salvation belongs to God to dispense and God alone. This is going to sound like the silliest thing I've said in a year, but it's the truth. I'm embarrassed by it. One of the most freeing days for me in the life of this church happened about four years in. We were doing well and by all standards, but I was struggling internally in my head, my heart. And someday, one, one day, after some prayer and some reflection, some talking, I had an epiphany that for you is going to sound like no duh. But here's what hit me. Ben, you can't save anybody. Quit trying. I ain't going to lie to you. I started enjoying my job that day. I started off enjoying it. Then I hated it. Honestly, I was looking for a way out. And the Lord reminded me, wait, wait, you don't save people, Ben. If they reject you, they're not rejecting you. If they choose to go against the advice and get into all kinds of stuff, that's on them. Then your job is to testify of me. I'm the great gift, not you, not your eloquence, not your logical persuasion, not your ability to save people from their sins. Stop it. That's mine. And I got to tell you something, friends. When I walk like that, I have confidence because I'm confident that God loves every sinner I love more than me. Take a step, baby. I'm confident that God loves my kids more than I do. Take a step, man. It's not mine. All I have to do is testify to the work of Jesus and regularly reflect on what a powerful gift it is for me and live with that confidence. And all of you get to do what you want with God and none of it's on me. Thank you, Jesus. That's freedom. You reject the gospel, you don't reject Ben. 
dear Lord, you reject the gospel. That's on you. You reject the wisdom of Scripture for a disciple. That's on you. I am loving being a pastor with that reality. I love it. Then all I have to do is talk about the most awesome gift God has ever given me. And if I do it faithfully to his word, I can walk with the shoes ready to proclaim the gospel. And without worrying about whether or not you like me because of how I do it. I wish I would have grown up when I became a legal adult. It didn't happen to me for 15 years later. How about you? How are you doing with the adulting thing when it comes to your maturity as a disciple? Shoes of the readiness of the gospel. And then the next piece of armament. Verse number 16, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith. When we talk about the shield of faith here, I'm not talking about the faith to believe that you can do anything. That is not what I'm talking about. This is a particular type of faith. It's the faith that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So all the stuff Christ has called you to do, you in Christ are more than capable. If he's called you to reject that temptation, in Christ, you are more than capable. If he's called you to be a godly man, in Christ, you're more than capable. If he's called you to be a godly young lady in a dating relationship, in Christ, you're more than capable. Because everything he's called you to, he is more than capable to equip you. And in that way, you can do all things through Christ to strengthen you. I cannot, simply by having faith, become a world-class piano player. I can believe it all day long. I can, in Christ, I can become a world-class piano player. And then I sit down at the piano. You know, it sounds like a, like a little kid at one of those stores that has a piano out, and they're just sitting there banging. I'm like, where's those parents? That's what I sound like, right? But in Christ, if I'm called, he will give me in time all that I need to walk towards him. This is the faith that we put on. It's, it's this shield that the Roman soldiers would clad with leather, and they'd dip it in water, and it'd get very heavy because they knew that they would hide behind this confidence they have in Christ. So when the enemy's fiery darts would come at them, they would be extinguished one-on-one. -on -one. They weren't called one more time to act like they were on the matrix, getting incredibly awesome moves as they avoided all the fiery darts of the enemy. No, no, no. Just hide behind Christ. Just hide behind him. Everything you need, everything you need is in Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, the Bible says. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It's the helmet of salvation, number five. This is the thinking. Now, I've always been told that your identity is most formed by the person you value the most. So for a lot of us, it's a parent. A lot of us, it's our fathers. For disciples, the person you value most, their opinion of you, is supposed to be your Lord and Savior. That's supposed to be the thing that marks your identity. And so many of us listen to everybody else's cues about who we are and what we should do that the voice of our Savior isn't loud enough. When I put on the helmet of salvation, I remember that he didn't just save me from my sins. He saved me unto life and life eternal. So what he says about me becomes the filter by which I interpret everything I let into my mind. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, sharper, than any two-edged sword, and it cuts to the very deepest part of who we are. It divides the most hidden parts of us, even our soul and spirit, the Bible says. There's one more reason why we're supposed to get in the Word of God, because it's in the Word of God that we discover again and fresh what the gospel really is. 
I cannot, could not, would not ever be able to save myself. Without Jesus, I'm totally lost. And I pick up that sword and I remember, I remember then that while I'm swinging, while I'm fighting against stuff, I don't do this in my own power and might. I was already dead. Everything I'm to do is to be animated by the word of God. So I get myself into this book regularly because in it, I discover God. I discover his principles. And a lot of times I figure out how to do marriage better and parenting better and money better. I mean, there's so much practicality available for the disciple. But even in those things, I don't do them in my own power. Last week, we talked about mutual submission in marriage. Let me be totally honest with you. I can't, on my own, submit to the mission of our marriage and the role I'm supposed to play enough in my own power. I can't. I can't be submitted to the mission. Jesus has to regularly remind me, Ben, it's not about you. It's about what I'm doing. It's not even about your wife. It's really about me, Ben. Your marriage is really about me. Don't make it about anything else. And then when I get in the Word, and I remember that, it does give me a certain amount of strength to reflect and remember. And when I fail, it brings me right back to that place of humble submission. Number seven, that's often not included in the armament is prayer. I want you to think about this. In the verses that we've just read, the soldier's completely dressed and he's ready for battle, right? But no, he's not. Because number seven is praying in the spirit. That is praying as the spirit directs. It's praying infused and animated by spirit things. So before the soldier goes and he's ready, he's got his shoes, he's got his breastplate, he's got his helmet, he's got his sword, he's got it all, he's got the girdle, he's got it all. But before he can engage, he has to engage with prayer. The prayer isn't then preparation, prayer is the beginning of the battle. Let me share with you this little tidbit I didn't share with first service. When Jesus left the earth, he told his disciples to wait to go tarry and pray and wait for them till God showed up. So for 10 days, they prayed and waited. They prayed for 10 days, 10 days. It's a long time to pray. We have a, uh, we, we have a big day coming up in tomorrow. And there's been a lot of prayer. I've walked this building and prayed. I haven't prayed 10 days for souls yet, right? I prayed a lot in the morning I normally do. They prayed for 10 days. And then the Apostle Peter gets up and he preaches the first sermon. And if you read it from beginning to end, it's less than 10 minutes. You know what happened with 10 days of prayer and 10 minutes of preaching? Now, before I tell you that, you know what we do? What do, we do? I try to talk at you for 10 days. And then we try to close with a two-minute prayer. I get my zeros wrong, right? You know what happened after 10 days of prayer when everybody prayed? And then they talked for 10 minutes? 3,000 people got saved. 10 days of prayer, 10 minutes of talking. I, I don't know. It just challenges me, friends, that prayer is not preparation. Prayer is the battle. So I want to encourage you, disciples, reflect on the gift of Jesus and one of the most powerful gifts he gives you to remind you over and over again how powerful he is and how wonderful the gospel is. It's the gift of prayer. And when you do this, the last message, note blank, it says, we do not fight for victory as if it's all on us. We actually fight from victory that's already been won for us. Let me read for you Paul's final words. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Verse 19, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I may 
I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tomorrow when we have a house full of guests, can I tell you what we're going to do? We're going to ask God to touch them by his power. Now we're going to be ready, building clean. We're going to be friendly. Everybody here is going to be friendly. If you're not a friendly Christian, please go ahead and come. But when we do greeting time, tell people this is not your home church. Let's just be clear. If you can't smile, just say, hey, I'm a guest too, all right? So it's fine. We want everybody here to have a friendly experience. But at the end of the day, if God's spirit doesn't show up, the best we'll have is a cool little moment with some candles. So we will pray and we will worship and we will sing about how awesome our God is. And we will ask God to send his sweet spirit here and to do spiritual battle in the hearts and minds of people beginning with us. And we'll do what the wise men did. We will come and wisely kneel before our Savior. And we'll be in awe of him. We'll let him soften our hearts and bring us back into alignment with his purposes for us. And we will pray that somehow that the Spirit of God that's dealing with us would deal with every person here. This is what the church does. We remember the gospel the greatest gift that Jesus has ever given. And it causes us to testify and to walk with believers in a way that looks like light. It's why we give. It's why we speak. It's why we serve. It's why we do everything we do. And Christmas brings it all back to center, doesn't it? Don't ever, ever, ever underestimate the power that you have as a child of God. You are more than a conqueror. Your father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Every lie spoken against you is declared null and void in the truth of Christ. The Bible says that the Lord will quiet the mouth of the devourer so that he cannot take from you what God has given you. In fact, he can actually restore what the enemy has stolen. This is your inheritance as a child of God. This is the gospel that you're to live and walk in as a child of the king. You are not powerless. You are powerful and you are mighty in Christ to the pulling down of strongholds because every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus. I want you to grab out your connect cards and let's take a step or two together today. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to give you a chance today to receive officially the greatest gift this world has ever known. Next step, A says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. Take your pen, check the box. And in doing so, you're declaring, God, I can't be righteous. So I trust the work that you did on my behalf. I trust in that alone. Lord, take my unrighteousness. Give me your righteousness. Take my unholiness. Give me your holiness. Take my sin. Give me your salvation. Take my control and you be the leader of my life. Put that card in the offering bucket when it comes by in a moment. We're going to bow our heads and pray and give you a chance to do business with God. Serious business of heaven to put out everything else, bow your head between, before the Savior of the world and say, Jesus, save me. And we'll communicate with you about what it means to be a child of God. How about next step B? I want to be baptized. February 9th is our next baptism. We'll celebrate with you what God's done in your life. Next step C says, I'll give a, a gift to the My Christmas gift offering. Don't underestimate your gift. It'll be powerful. It's going to make a big difference in so many ways. And the next step, D says, I'll invite two people to Eve Eve. Go, go to lunch today. Give a decent tip. Invite your server. When you're out shopping for last-minute gifts, 
invite somebody, you never know what an invite might do. And when they get in this place, we will be prayed up and we'll be ready, we'll be friendly, and we'll share the gospel of Jesus in as clear terms as I know how. I'm calling the message, Hope Has a Name, and his name is Jesus. And he still changes people from the inside out. How about next step B? I'd like to host a winter small group in January. We'll launch the next session of small groups. This is where we get in circles and we talk about how to encourage one another. What does it mean to be a disciple? How does it look in our practical lives to be a disciple in a broken world when I'm broken and they're broken and all that stuff gets talked about? You share as little, as little as much as you want and maybe you get to make a couple spiritual friends. We have to have some hosts who want to help make that happen. So if that's you, if you at all consider it, check the box, you go through the training. It's very short and clear. And at the end of it, you decide, do I want to do this or not? It begins with a checked box. Why don't you set that aside? And if you call this church home, there's some folks coming forward to receive your tithe and offering to make it happen around here. So I often try to tell you thank you. And I want to say that again. Just thank you for being a faithful church. Thank you that going on 12 years ago now, we had enough money and generosity in this place that we were able to give a couple thousand dollars to a, a missionary in Africa who ended up literally giving his life. Now in January or February, his wife's going to be with us on this stage sharing that story. And uh, I think you're going to be moved by it. I'll, once we land the date exactly, I'll tell you when it is. But let me tell you what I thought about as we take up our offering today. I thought about the number of kids that are going to be in our kids' service tomorrow night. They're going to have fun over here, pump it up. They're going to hear about Jesus. And I thought about, I wonder if any of those kids are sitting around playing whatever's the modern equivalent of Atari 2600. Is it Xbox One? What is it? I don't even know what it is now. But they're sitting there playing video games and they have no idea that the Spirit of God has touched them and said, you're going to be a pastor. And you're going to be a missionary. You're going to be a great businessman and you're going to be an incredibly godly mother and you're going to be a godly man in a world where nobody else seems to be godly. You're going to be a salt and light over here and you're going to be a source of truth over here. And they have no idea. They're just playing video games. But there's a church who believes in the power of the gospel enough to give some dollars and pennies which are not eternal to make an eternal difference. And I'm just praying that this house will be full of people who need to be reminded that the gospel is powerful, that no matter what anybody else has spoken over those children, God declares life over them and purpose and design. And I want us to drive the anchor of the gospel as far as we can in the one shot we have. So I'm begging you, invite your friends. If you haven't yet, get on board. Come on, come on. It's Christmas. Invite somebody here. And I'm begging you, as Paul closed out Ephesians, pray for your pastor that I could speak the word of God boldly and that the Holy Spirit would move. So thank you for being an awesome church. Thank you for your generosity. Let's pray about our offerings and next steps right now. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. I want to thank you that all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. And that as his child, I have all the power of heaven fighting for me, fighting with me. I'm so grateful that the one who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world. I am so grateful that the blood of Jesus still washes every stain. I'm so grateful that the power of the gospel is greater than any force this world has ever experienced. I pray, Lord, 
that you would give us souls for your kingdom. I pray that you would soften the hearts of men and women here to the ongoing work of the gospel in their lives. I pray that you would give us boldness to testify to the goodness of God that we have seen in our lives. I pray, Lord, where the enemy has been successful to bring doubt, confusion, fear, where he's robbed us of joy, where he's embittered our hearts with unforgiveness, I pray you would break those strongholds in Jesus' mighty name. And that Christmas would not be a year that we just give gifts to one another, but it would be the year that we once again open up the gift that is Jesus to us, God's favored children. Father, would you take our gifts and next steps and would you use them to bring glory to yourself? And one more time, Father, give us souls for your kingdom. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen.